The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Tom Searcy, co-author of Life After the Death of Selling, How to Thrive in the New Era of Sales. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I produce this podcast to help us both keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow faster by taking a sales-based approach to marketing. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. And if you're one of the many, many listeners who's left a review on Apple Podcasts, I want to drop a little something in the mail to thank you. Details after the interview. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Tom Searcy back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the book he has co-authored with Kara Jane Moore, Life After the Death of Selling, How to Thrive in the New Era of Sales, published by Indie Books International. Tom Searcy is a nationally recognized author, speaker, and expert in large account sales. How do we know he's an expert? By the age of 40, Tom had led four corporations, growing them each from revenues of less than $10 million to greater than $100 million. And in the last case, from startup to greater than $200 million, each in less than four years. And this growth was organic, and it was achieved without buying, selling, or merging any of the four corporations. Since then, he founded Hunt Big Sales, a fast growth consultancy whose clients have landed more than $12 billion in new sales with 190 of the Fortune 500 companies, including 3M, Disney, Chase Bank, International Paper, AT&T, Apple, and hundreds more. He's the author of RFPs Suck, How to Master the RFP System Once and for All to Win Big Business, and is the co-author of Whale Hunting, How to Land Big Sales and Transform Your Company, and How to Close a Deal Like Warren Buffett, Lessons from the World's Greatest Deal Maker. He has written weekly online columns for Forbes, CBS Money Watch, and Inc., Com and has been quoted in the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Inc. Magazine, and many other business publications. And interesting fact, he once owned a casino. Tom, congratulations on life after the death of selling and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. It is so good to be back. Thanks, Douglas. And uh, I did own a casino and I'm glad I don't anymore. Well, it's funny you told me that because as I was reading through this book, you talked about roulette wheels and blackjack and gambling, and now it all comes together. <laughs> I just remember thinking, wow, this guy's really familiar with uh, <laughs> with with uh, the casino lifestyle. And I guess it's a good thing you don't own it anymore because uh, now yours was an online casino, but the casinos uh, these days are having a pretty rough time. They are. You, you really would like to have sold out on January 1 of this year and not held on for any longer than that. But yeah. Glad not to have any bricks and mortars and mortar in the casino business. So if people remember Tom's name, it's because he was on episode 285, where we talked about his newest book, uh, Selling in Place. 
And this is going to be episode 294. And I should explain, perhaps for new listeners, yes, this is the Marketing Book Podcast, and I have lots and lots of books about sales on the show. And the reason why is many-fold, but one of them is that the most successful marketers, the best marketers, have a pretty deep understanding of sales, the sales process, what their salespeople are dealing with. And even more importantly, the way that their customers buy. So, Tom, in this book, there it's in three sections. And well, you know, for sales or for like CEOs and then sales managers and then uh, salespeople, explain why your initial thought was to actually write three different books. The- Ideas of how a an owner or CEO looks at sales and revenue generation, the way a director or manager does, and the way a frontline sales rep looks at it, they are fundamentally different. There are some core differences. The frontline sales rep is looking for tips, tr- uh, tricks, techniques on how to close the next sale. Directors uh, and VPs of sales and marketing are looking for processes, systems, transparency, mechanisms that allow them to work a sales funnel uh, as well as to work with their salespeople. A vice president or an owner or CEO is looking for strategy and overall revenue outcomes and is looking at a broader. So I thought of looking at all three of those and saying, well, everybody has a piece of some of it. Nobody has an exclusive right to any of it. So I'm going to write, first I thought, oh, I'll write three different books from three different perspectives. And I thought, no, wait a minute, this is one book that everybody has to have access to, but they can choose which part they want to spend the majority of their time on. And that's why I wrote it, wrote it in three different sections. Okay. So I want to read from the beginning, an excerpt. You write, the world of sales didn't change in a vacuum. It changed because the of buying changed. When I began writing this book, I reflected on the past decade and saw very specific developments occurred that changed how selling was performed overall, how revenue was generated, and how companies incorporated these changes through their sales management. Significant shifts in the B2B buying process have transformed selling as we know it. In this book, I lay out how the world of sales must adapt going forward into the next Decade. So, Tom, seriously, the book is titled Life After the Death of Selling. I am now required to ask, is selling dead? Selling is not dead. And when I said life after the death of selling, it's uh, it really is the death of selling in the traditional perspective. This is pre-pandemic. This was just by looking at the trends and the information that's out there, the data that's provided in the book, the research that we had done. And the answer uh, to all of this is the world shifting to transactional, which is on-demand buying by uh, people that are out there in the marketplace right now. You, you may not know this, Douglas, but if you go online right now to Alibaba.com, you can buy a backhoe, you can buy an MRI, all right, you can buy building materials, all the commercial type things where people say, well, you know, people are always going to have to buy those multi-million-dollar uh, kinds of purchases from a salesperson. No. You don't. That's a transactional purchase, or at least the opportunity for it, and it's only going to become more that way. So what does selling look like? Well, selling is really about those opportunities out in the marketplace that are about high revenue purchases with high complexity. If you look at the statistics that are out there from the U.S. Department of Labor uh, and then analyzed by McKenzie and uh, uh, Gartner, it comes down to this. Over a million sales jobs are going to have been lost by 2025. 22% of the sales force, traditional sales force, will be gone. Why is that? Well, if you're transactionally processing, that's going to go online. If you're selling online servicing as a way to grow, I mean, I'm sorry, on-site servicing as a way to grow revenue and to take care of your customers, that's moving to tutorials and interactive online uh, opportunities there. If you sell commodities, and that's moved into a, a bidding, RFP, RFQ kind of a process. What's left in the real world of sales and will be left over time? Complexity and scale. 
people are going to look at those things that are complicated and that are going to cost a lot of money and they're going to want to deal with a salesperson. As a matter of fact, the only kind of area in sales that is growing or will grow over the course of the next five years will be the area of significant size and significant complexity. So when I talk about the death of selling, it's the loss of 22% of the sales force that's out there in less than a five-year period of time because that old mechanism is gone. Mm. You know, it seems like almost every week I'm explaining to some business, maybe it's a prospect or somebody just asking me questions, and I explain about, you know, in, in your case, you say sales is changing because the way the people buy has changed. And it's the same thing for marketing. It's not like we're special. <laughs> it's the way people gather information to make purchases. And I, it seems like I'm explaining that, and I'm never going to stop having to explain that to people. Why do you think it is that what seems to me so many companies do not understand this? Is it because maybe their management or leadership came up in a different time? I think it is. Um, I had an old partner that referred to it this way, that culture is um, is the history of what works. And when you've got 20 years of doing something in a particular format or uh, approach and it has worked for that period of time, as you go into your 21st year, you have only a 5% inkling that change is necessary and you've got a 95% history of what has been successful in the past. You're fighting against culture being the shared history of what works. You're fighting against that energy of past success. Uh, rarely do people look toward the future and see, you know, the train uh, is coming. I think I write about it in uh, the book, but it's the picture of the two dinosaurs who are talking to each other. Oh, yes. And, and this and a snowflake falls and one looks at the other one and says, oh, don't worry, I think it'll pass. Um, that's where we are in the world of marketing where you're going out and talking to people, they still have a perspective of what branding means. They have a perspective of what um, communications means. They have a, a perspective of what is valid as far as a relationship with a customer. And they look at all of those things and they try to use that lens to look at new marketing ideas that are coming through. And they say, well, that, that's kind of outside of, of really the way it works. Because trust me, Right, Douglas, trust me, I really understand my market. I really understand my customer base. I really understand what's going on. And this is what uh, the audience who's listening to this, that's what you face is this built-up knowledge of what has been and not a perspective of what is coming or already is. That is so true. And companies know a lot less about their customers than they think they do. <laughs> that's just based on my my experience. And that's why, you know, in marketing, so much of the unfair advantages that can be created <laughs> for a client or for a company have to do with understanding your customers. And you talk about that there. And then in the book, you didn't waste time warming the cockles of my heart <laughs> because <laughs> you talked about how, uh, I think it was on page 10 here, it says, to motivate and mobilize for structural change, you must start with the prime mover of change, the customer. Painting the picture of the future starts with picturing your customer in the future. How can companies start to embrace that or, or what are some of the things that they can start to do uh, if they are thinking, yeah, you know, like I, for instance, I heard from a company a couple weeks ago and they called and said, you know, we don't seem to be getting that many calls anymore. And really all they're asking about now is price. <laughs> they used to call us and ask us for information. Well, gee, boss, why do you, why do you think that is? The, so those guys are starting to get it. Okay. That's an example. What can companies do to start to better understand how their customers are changing? Boy, there's, <laughs> like you said, the cockles of your heart got warm. I'm thinking to myself, he just gave me the broadest question that I could yeah. possibly try to answer, but I'll do my best. And I'll be back um, in about 45 minutes to see how you're doing. Right. <laughs> so let's start off with a, a couple pieces. One of the things that when we work with uh, companies and probably the marketing group out there really understands it, we don't try to get our customers to understand their customers. So let's just say I've got 
Acme, very, very large company, and say, you need to reach your market differently or better. Let's go ahead and figure out who your customer is, what they're about, what they need, and all the rest of those kinds of things, and see if we can't reach that voice or that conversation about that. We go past that and say, what does your customer's customer need? Mm. So if I'm selling into Acme, I need to know who Acme's customers are. And then beyond that one step to understand the revenue chain, because why did they hire you? They didn't hire you to get better. They hired you to get them customers. The customers only hired Acme so that they could get more customers. I have to understand all the way past the first level to the next level. Because if I come in and say, I can help you generate more revenue. All right. And they're going to say, well, how are you going to do that? And you say, well, I'm going to advertise better. And I'm going to be search engine optimization. And I understand branding and all the rest of those kinds of things. You're going to sound a great deal like everybody else. Mm-hmm. But if I say, let me tell you what your customers look like. Your customers look like this, that, and the other thing. And they use your product or service, Mr. Acme, because it gets their customers to buy more. The money is two steps away. If you're going to differentiate yourself, look two steps past the problem that you think you're solving. You're solving your customer's customer's problem, and that in turn is why people buy from you and why you should buy from us. So I hope that I hope that that square dance didn't wasn't um, confusing, but the lens of all the way past who it is that you think you're selling and who who you think that they are selling, going all the way past that out, that allows you the chance to then to reframe, right? What is the what is the message that you are taking to your customer and how it is that you look different? It's funny because right now we watch people counting money in all sorts of ways. Um, but typically they count the money from what it is that I sell and what it is that I promise. Instead of saying, okay, Acme, what is it that you promise? And my job is to help you solve that promise for that company who's solving another promise for another person. What are the three levels of promises? Yeah, if you are able to focus, and this is in sales or in, in marketing, if you can show up and start talking about your customer's customer, it just brings to mind for me over the years, like particularly back when I worked in advertising. And whenever we would bring research in about the client's customers, they were never more quiet. <laughs> they were they were interested. They were soaking it uh, soaking it all in. So just a tip there, focus on your customer's customer. And I, 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 there's not as much uh, competition there. I want to go back to something I asked about earlier, which is, let's say the boss, they may be thinking, well, when I came up through the ranks, cold calling worked, and it was all about backslapping and building a good relationship and being a really swell guy or gal. And you talk in the book quite a bit about the importance of leading from the front. In other words, the head of organizations now have to be much more involved in actual sales. And it seems to me like that solves a lot of problems in terms of them then understanding what the, the frontline troops, the salespeople are dealing with. And you write, the world is no longer as it was. If you continue to try to sell by hard work, charisma, personal contacts, and your database of people you've done business with in the past, you are going to go extinct. Your ability to be an effective sales leader is in part dictated by your ability to increase the capacity of your organization to change. So what are some of the things that some of your clients are doing right and or and or doing wrong in terms of what what are the things that are the most helpful or harmful in terms of trying to get their organizations to change the first thing that they are doing let's just say the second thing the first thing they're doing is they're trying to understand their customers better but they're also trying to understand their markets better because of all of the turnover inside of the buying side of the world the the whole the whole spider web of past relationships has been broken. Now they're showing up and they're saying, I, I can't backslap any because I don't know who the person is. And when I do know who the person is, they're not of my generation or not of my ilk. They've got different uh, pressures and et cetera. So what happens now is by having your senior executive with you in that sales conversation, they get to hear 
that the world has changed. But more importantly, they still bring one of the key pieces that has to be there, and that is the expertise and the gravitas of their uh, of their position. The expertise, meaning they still understand the markets very, very well. It's just that shorthand that knowledge with somebody that they already have a buddy with. They have to actually be more representative and speak more directly about uh, that information. And then the gravitas simply says, I'm the president or the senior vice president, the vice president of my organization. You, Mr. Prospect or customer, are so important to me that I'm taking the time and energy to focus just on listening and being with you. Um, that, I was just speaking with someone the other day and they wanted uh, to hire a sales force of 23-year-olds to speak to CEOs of, you know, one of the, uh, a bunch of the Fortune 500 companies. There's no gravitas there. Mm -mm. There's nothing in there. They're not bringing any expertise there. They are an inexpensive knock on the door a lot of times, and hopefully you're going to get through. And that's the misunderstanding of what is the relationship-based approach to selling is really an expertise-based approach to selling not just buddies that you used to know in your earlier life. It seems to me that, sure, maybe there will be net fewer people in sales in the future, but those that are are going to be earning very high incomes, and their stature is going to be, or their, their, their perception is going to be further and further and further away from the used car salesman that a generation of people think of anyone in sales. Like in the book, you even talk about how like bringing engineers or subject matter experts or anyone else into part of the sales process, the knee-jerk reaction is, well, I'm not, I'm not in sales. I'm not a salesperson. They almost want to proclaim it proudly. And you explain that modern sales is about solving big problems, big problems for high-level executives. So could you say more about that and, in particular, why a 23-year-old, nothing against 23-year-olds, I have kids that are 22 and 25, so they're, they're good kids. <laughs> but why, <laughs> right. why is that actually uh, problematic as it relates to solving big problems for high-level executives? Well, we can break it down into three pieces. One is just simply reference frame. They do not have, typically, the background of solving unique problems at a certain scale that requires the history, a, a deep history of failure. <laughs> they haven't failed enough. They haven't made enough mistakes. They haven't engineered a process in the wrong way. They haven't branded in the wrong way. They haven't asked the wrong uh, customers of the wrong people that are out there. And just so you know, Part I check the- all those boxes, but please go ahead. <laughs> I have failed every way that can be failed at. I want to let you know I'm an expert. Um, and and there's, there's a lot to be said for that. When you walk into a room, um, regardless of who's listening to this right now, but you, you walk into a room of a senior executive and you start talking about what works and what doesn't work, you have a story on both sides. You have a, an expertise and a relevance, right? A, a reference frame of both of those things that will get some resonance with the person to whom you're speaking. Gives you the credibility that says, I've earned through either injury or benefit what it is that I know and my and I'm gonna I'm gonna provide you the respect that you have too. Now, I know a little bit more because I failed in other areas than you do. Let's talk about the places I was successful and uh, failed in other areas that gave me an education, a background, or a credibility that you, Mr. Customer, might want to benefit from. 23-year-old, young, inexpensive, or, or uh, inexperienced, <laughs> hopefully inexpensive. Well, they're too, probably inexpensive too. That's why they're hiring them right yeah. out of school. Right. Well, that's right. You know, if all you want is is um, coverage, then you know you can probably hire at that level. But, sure. Um, so that's the reference frame issue. The second thing is you want someone who is a problem solver. It's to the point right now that no one or very few people have a sales representative on their business card. They will be, you know, uh, integrated marketing executive. They will be, um, you know, business analyst. There's a variety of terms that are out there because selling has a perception, not even if it's a used car salesperson, is a salesperson who's still a good professional salesperson is out there. And the perception is that you're going to give me access to the problem solvers inside of your company. 
and that you're going to know which problem solvers are best for me. A great salesperson right now who's out there selling large, complex opportunities or even good-sized opportunities should be and is best served when they're representing themselves as an access point to other great problem solvers inside of the company. That's because the CEO isn't looking for a new relationship with a sales rep. They're looking for a unique set of skills for solving problems. That's what they want. So that's one of the other reasons. The third reason I would say that comes into this particular piece is that how are you going to, although there's some uh, technical places that are out there, how are you going to have enough um, of your own uh, interaction with your own product or your own service to really be able to speak about it richly without having brought someone else with you. I think about in the marketing business right now, can you imagine going in and doing an in-depth analysis and discussion with someone on the marketing side of a customer base about SEO and just not sounding like a simple article that you would pick up online? Well, but on the other hand, I, I think a lot of them don't want to know all the details. They want to know what result you can help them achieve. And uh, just based on you know seeing people gloss over, they want to be satisfied that you, like in our case, you know SEO. They we want to have all those resources, but they they really start to glaze over when you start when, when they start asking you about how it's done. Huge point that you're making there. Let me let me unpack that just a little bit. So the issue of what what is it that I'm going to get? What is the outcome I'm going to achieve? What is the the end? Senior executives very very interested in that. All right. The how they have other people that they want on their side to confirm the safety and certainty that it will occur. What's the mechanisms that deliver the result? So they glaze over in the how because they think they've got their own people who can evaluate the how. Mm -hmm. And those people are evaluating, yeah, will it work with our system? does it actually have some sort of verifiable history or background or mechanism or whatever that I can look at uh, and know that we're going to get the result? So interest comes from what, right? Purchase comes from how. Because purchase, the how shows them why it's a safe decision to make this choice. Anybody can walk in and say to you, I'm going to save you 95% off of your fill-in-the-blank um, services, or I'm going to triple your rate of response, or I'm going to do whatever. So that's the interest level. Someone at senior executive level says, yeah, I'd like to triple my uh, response rate by 3x. What's the next question? How, How do, do you do it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it reminds me of all those charlatans out there, and none of them are listening to this podcast, I'm sure. But it's all these people you see uh, emails saying, we will get you to the top of the Google results. Or <laughs> the people I get these um, LinkedIn connections from that say uh, B2B lead generation on LinkedIn guaranteed appointments with the right kind of prospects. <laughs> it's like, I don't even ask how because I know they can't do it. Um, but it, yeah, that reminds me of uh, some of these claims that I that I see out there. So Tom, you talk, of course, in the book about a topic that just uh, seems to elude a lot of companies. And that is the importance of carefully considering which customers you should be targeting. And I just makes me wonder, do you still see a lot of companies that deep down inside just want to sell to anybody with a pulse? <laughs> I've seen a lot of companies who want to sell to anybody who's got a pulse. Uh, when you say that, I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, has he been in some of my uh, the customers that we wind up working with and then uh, before we get a chance to work with them? There's this fear out there that if I don't talk to everybody, I'm going to miss something, right? Um, I can't remember. It's uh, FOMA or whatever. Uh, oh, term for f- fear of missing out? FOMO? Yeah. Yeah. So yep. there's this fear of missing out. If I don't get, if I don't talk to everybody, there'll be a part of the market that I don't reach. And my answer, of course, is the market is not homogenous. Every person that you're going to talk to does not cost the same amount of money, effort, intellectual property to turn them into a customer. So if you spread yourself out across the marketplace, you will actually have a variation of margin. And you'll also have a limited capacity to reach all of them because of people and ad spend and marketing efforts and et cetera. So you need to leverage 
to those folks that provide you the greatest speed to sale because they've got an urgency to buy what it is that you need, the greatest alignment with what is the value that you bring to the table, the greatest chemistry and alignments, meaning that when they talk to you and you talk to them, there's a shared language of, of what um, you're trying to accomplish and how you're going to move forward. You don't have to like each other a lot. You just have to align up and say, that person gets me and I get them. And you could define that. You can define a lot of that. And almost all of the work that we do helps companies define that down to between six and 11 core questions. People say, well, why don't you ship me the same six to 11? It's not the same six to 11. It's just like <laughs> in the marketing side. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I just send somebody out a three by five card. And on the inside of that, it's got all the answers. It's not that easy. But you can't sell to everybody. And with the expense of selling to people going up, the fact is it's dangerous to try to sell to everybody. Yeah, and that's where there was a, a book on the show a while back by um, Peter Fader and uh, Sarah Toms from University of Pennsylvania called the Customer Centricity Playbook. And it was a short book, but it was all about, but it was a marketing book about focusing on your most profitable customers to then start to direct your marketing efforts. You, you see the, <laughs> the connection there, Tom? Kind of yes. like uh, a sales team. You know, so I'll <clears throat> talk to companies and, you know, this is a question that the CFO likes being asked or, or should go be able to go figure out who are your most profitable customers. And it doesn't necessarily mean the most revenue. It's the most profitable customer. The other thing that I find helpful in terms of moving the conversation along is to say, who are your worst customers? Which ones are the biggest drag that you make very little money on and so forth? I usually get a pretty fast answer. And that then, for me, helps to lead the discussion to, okay, well, then what do the good ones look like? (laughs) And it starts to kind of shepherd them uh, along. So, yeah, it's – oh, but you – of course, in the book, you explain why it's uh, so um, problematic to to not – focus on the just the ones that make the most sense. And I remember there were yet another book on the show. I can say that now because we're almost at 300. But there was a one called, uh, by a guy you may know, um, Jamie Shanks. He wrote uh, Spear Selling about, you know, um, outbound, targeted, you know, that that kind of sale. And, you know, going after the right ones. And in his book, also, he talked about how probably the biggest mistake companies make is going after the wrong customers. Once they get that right, a lot of other things uh, start to, to fall in place. But let me ask you about something that I know the marketing folks are going to love to hear, but even the, the sales folks as well. And just so you know, I wrote a surfing term in the column of the book when I read this sentence. And that surfing term is, whoa, <laughs> W-H-O-A with an exclamation point. You write, if you want to know what your message shouldn't be in the world of large account selling and solving big problems for big customers, just visit your website. <laughs> what the heck are you talking about? Well, uh, there's again, there's a lot there. fact is, is that uh, websites are uh, deliver a message for a broad audience not your biggest customers, not your best customers. It's it's a branding piece out there that tries to, to say to the world, at any door you come through, here are the general core principles of who we are. You know, uh, and so that's okay. And if you flip on, there's little tabs on there. It says, uh, so I, I worked with a construction company as an example, and they've got one that says industrial, another tab that says medical, another one says educational and et cetera. And you pop up each of those tabs and it kind of gives you the background of what they do and some nice case studies, a couple declarations of uh, why we're the best. And you do the same thing and you do the same thing, do the same thing. So anybody coming in who is a construction buyer of any sort is going to click on one of those particular tabs is going to find out everything about everything that you can buy. Now, I don't know if we look at that, but if you're in, say, medical, you can build a little clinic, you can install an MRI, you can build a hospital. I mean, saying out there in the marketplace, I can do all of those things doesn't make me more likely to buy you if I think that you're a hospital builder or I think you're a clinic builder, right? You just start to look like a builder. So if you want to know what makes you special or look different uh, from everybody else, then it's a very tailored message. And websites aren't designed to give you a thin slice of the market message. 
They're designed to give you a broad picture uh, to everybody in the marketplace of brand and overall capabilities and capacity. So <laughs> I, I, websites are not how you buy six to 10 figure um, pieces of business. You go to the website to make certain that you've got the address right, the email right, and that they're a legitimate company on big deals, on big sales, big opportunities. Well, you write, ask a website design firm to help you figure out what kind of website you should have. One of the first things they will ask for is a list of your five, 10 biggest competitors. What are they doing with that information? They're going to look at all of your competitors' websites. What language and examples are used? What products, services, and solutions are offered? They'll take the best ideas they can find and compare what you're going to bring to the marketplace to what has already been brought to the marketplace uh, by your competitors. Well, let's go on to another topic that, again, every question I ask is basically something that Tom Searcy has probably been taking crazy pills about for the last 25, 30 years. So, Tom, talk about what you mean when you urge companies, particularly company leadership, to answer the following question, which is a question that I am going to be stealing with full attribution. But I love this question. How will we measure progress before success? How will we measure progress before success? And what this does for me is it derails somebody saying, well, are sales going up? I love this. Uh, thank you. And I, I will tell you that it has been um, key, I would think, in, in the space that you operate in, really big. Somebody wants you to push a button and redesign a brand strategy or uh, put together a set of marketing materials or help them launch a new product. And 30 days later, you know, they're watching it like they're watching a microwave waiting for their macaroni and cheese to pop out. <laughs> That's great. Yes, and, very true. And so they're saying to themselves, what, you know, do I have to, am I going to have to hit it for another 30 seconds? But by the way, does anybody set time on a microwave? I know this isn't a side question. Or do we all do the same thing, which is just to pe press the, the 30 second button as many times as we think it's going to take? Um, <laughs> But, no, it, I know it's an aside, but it's true. Well, this is not dissimilar. By the way, what I just described is not dissimilar to marketing, right? And sales. Your customer is standing there in front of the microwave and trying to figure out, do I have to press the, the button for another 30 seconds, another 30 seconds? And how many bloody times do I have to push it to get the result that I want? And so they pressed it for, and they know it's going to take four units, which would be two minutes, right? And after one minute, they open up the microwave door and they go, is it? How, how far along is it? Is it is it cooked yet? And so the question's got to be, how do I know along the way, what are the initial indicators that you're actually getting progress? Um, in our, our business, to go teach people how to land large sales, um, you know, you're talking about your large sale comes about nine months to a year after we engage with you. So if you think in 60 days, you're going to start seeing large deals roll in, it doesn't work like that. And there's a whole lot of reasons that I explained to you up front why it doesn't look like that. And you nod your head as my customer and say, yeah, you're absolutely right. It doesn't look like that. And 60 days from now, you're going to still look at me and you're going to say to yourself, hey, where are the big deals coming from? Every <laughs> single time. Yeah. I'm sorry? Every single time. In other words, you think you've managed the expectation and it's like, yeah, that, that's great. We're, we're Like in our case, you know, we'll produce a lot of <clears throat> marketing support for a company. And then they're like, uh, well, how come we're not, um, how come we're not making more sales? Well, wait a minute. You told us you have an 18 month sales cycle. <laughs> we're doing this. The, the other thing I love about how we measure progress before success is that also indicates that you have defined success. What is success going to look like? Too often, that's not the case either. Well, so you just brought up, so I'll just tell you something just for everybody who liked the question that we just asked, uh, is that we put out the progress report card and progress report card simply says you should expect this in 60 days, this in, in 90 days, 120 days, whatever. And typically in our business, which is probably very, very different than yours, but in ours, uh, it has to do with an internal adoption rate, meaning does your company actually buying into and trying to do the things that we're talking about, reaching out into the marketplace? And then we talk about what's the volume and frequency 
of initial connection. And that's going to be come out of the 120 days. And then from that point, have you changed your pipeline? So every indicator along the way has to do with the progress to the future, but not an indicator of statistical uh, statistics like, do you have a pipeline of $20 million? Because getting to the end result is a byproduct of the systems, processes, adoptions, and et cetera, that you're doing internally. Did you spend the $50,000 you were going to spend in marketing budget each of the course of the last three months, four months, and five months? Did we reach the number of people that we said we were going to reach? Not that they called us back or they got online and bought us or, or whatever. Did they simply come and have the first interaction exchange with us as a company? Oh, okay. Well, how many of those are going to occur? Well, they're coming, but they're not buying anything. I said, they're not. That's not the measure. The measure of the progress is the first step is, are they coming? Mm -hmm. And then if the answer is yes, then your answer is, okay, fine. Then we are on progress to the outcome that we all wanted to get. You wanted to know along the way, whether we were there, that, you know, people are, you can't plug in the coordinates of your endpoint on your GPS and then not watch the turn by turn along the way. <laughs> well said. Yes. So that's, that's our job. Whoever's listening to this isn't uh, you. Everyone here experiences the desire for please put in the mark microwave, push 30 seconds and it comes out hot and perfect. Most of us are selling anything complex. That's not how it works. Mm -hmm. Well, you're also talking about why, following a sales process is so important. And you talk about that a lot in the book, following a sales process is very important. And there was a term that I, I was not familiar with, but you had, uh, and, and I, I just love it. It was called stage gate process, mm -hmm. stage gate process. And it was sort of like, uh, I think even in the book, you talked about how, you know, building a house. Well, first you have to pour the foundation. Okay, if, if you don't have the foundation poured, you can't start to frame out that first level. So can, can you explain more about this, this stage gate process? And I, I think that it seems like it works really well in you know, following it in a, in a CRM as well. It does. And, and so stage gate came from originally manufacturing and then and construction, which says that you must complete a certain number of things and before you can move on to the next step. And oh, by the way, you cannot skip any of the items in any particular stage. The gate is closed to move to the next stage until all things are completed in that particular area. In the sales process, it typically comes down to information and people. We're in the second stage of a sales conversation with a company. You have to have met with these three people from over in the buying organization. Maybe it's the finance person, the end user, and a technical person. But those have been identified in advance as part of the sales process. So everybody knows. Second stage, you got to meet all three of these folks. You have to have the answer to these eight questions before we go to the third stage in the sales process. So here's the three questions or the eight questions that you got to get the answers to. Okay, fine. We know to be successful, those three people have to met three people on our side. And that means this person, that person. So the salesperson, maybe one of our technical buyers that's in there and maybe one of our compliance officers. And they need to have known that we have um, historical uh, benefit background. Maybe it's a, a, an analysis of some point. So we've got three or four things that we have to have provided. You don't get to skip to the next stage until you've accomplished all the things in this stage, people and information exchange, because you know that if we do that here, the next step we go, we will have better information, better people, different people, different information. And I'm not going to get um, bitten by an eel, as we would call it, or facing a smiling assassin, or at the very end of the sales process, I get a guess who showed up that I didn't know before who says, I'm not really sure why we're here. Because I took all the steps in advance at the right order in the right place that I get to the very end and I get the outcome that I wanted. Mm -hmm. And if I don't get what I want, it's because I'm stuck in a stage and I either can't get to the people and get the information or they won't engage with my people or they don't care about my information. That tells me something. If they won't connect with my people and my information, this is a pricing exercise. If they won't give me their people or their information, then it tells me that they're holding on to something that they don't want to share or they're really not interested. Mm -hmm. And when you don't get it, you, you, you don't get as many answers of, well, the chemistry just wasn't there. No, actually, <laughs> you're able to go back and pinpoint you know, where there might have been a leak in, in your system. 
I want to ask you about this other uh, quote here. I'm just going to quote it, okay? <laughs> okay. It's, it's a very quotable book, and I've already used up an entire pen marking this thing up. But you mentioned uh, you know, the, the, the process, following the process. You write, one fundamental truth of selling is that sales processes don't change until buying processes do. That's because salespeople do those things that work. When they find that the work that they're doing isn't getting the results that they want, they change, albeit a little slower than now. Or maybe you've noticed that despite all the energy you've been putting into your selling process, you're getting less back. What are some of the reasons for that realization that companies start to have if they have it? No, there's so many. So, so let's just take those people that are salespeople who've been in place for a long time have an, an entrenched customer base, all right, mm-hmm. have entrenched buyers. They don't see that there's a need to change because their buyers have not changed. And the buying processes those people have have not changed. Both the buyer and your sales rep are living in a different generation. The minute the buyer or the buying organization changes, your salesperson is left adrift if that's what they're holding on to. If you're a newer sales representative or you're aggressively oriented or you're financially oriented to get new customers, then you are constantly testing in the marketplace, what is it that is necessary for me to be successful? You'll talk to two, three, 20 uh, buyers that are out there in the marketplace and you'll get a marketplace sensation of what is going on and why it is that we need to shift. That's a circumstance in which the buying process has changed and a salesperson who is oriented to getting new sales makes the adjustments to chase that. Dangerous thing, salespeople who hold on to customers with uh, perpetuity in their commission structures and with being only compensated for gross dollars at the end of the year because they can hold on to their core customers as they are and do no additional new work out in the marketplace, and therefore, they don't understand that it's time for them to change. Mm, And then they're left high and dry, perhaps even from a career standpoint. So let's talk about who owns the process now. You you talk about how the the buyer kind of controls a lot more of the process. So you ask the question, all right, so what are are we as salespeople uh, supposed to do? And you say, well, there's, there's three things you can do, and you've already touched on a couple of them. One of them is uh, we can get super efficient at transactions, okay? But it sounds like that's going to be, technology is going to be able to take more and more of that away, you know, take care of that. Simply simply doing transactions, and I'm thinking those are smaller deals, probably lower risk. Right. Then you can also become what you say is uh, an outstanding buying processor, which is, you know, becoming really good. Think of all those government contractors. They're really good at responding to buyer RFPs. And you're a guy that wrote about how much RFPs suck. <laughs> so that's that's not a that's that's not where the 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 future or the big margins are. But then you talk about uh, the third one is an option that I think will appeal to a lot of people. You call it take back the selling process. <laughs> yes. So you you talk about uh, some of the things you have to do to take the selling process back. And we've already touched on a couple of those. One of them is you talk about how you now have to solve bigger problems, bigger problems. And the other one is that you have to be talking to people higher up in the food chain. And this is where you're, you're talking about how you know, the, the salespeople of the future, the successful ones, they're, they're implementing strategic change. They're they're solving these hot fires for the for the top people, and then you talk about how you have to get more comfortable with more people on both sides of the table. In other words, it, are you encountering a lot of people that just are, I guess, complaining without understanding why there have to be so many people involved in a purchase now? You know, so much of the decisions around how we implement anything is driven by fears, right? So you're Mm -hmm. absolutely right. People are like, why do they have to be so many people involved? If they're on my own side selling to a company, I've got people on my team I don't trust. I mean, I got got Joe from IT who never shuts up. And I got Bill from engineering. And he's the first guy to go ahead and tell you about everything we do that doesn't work. 
And, I mean, yeah, you like can, the Dilbert cartoons. <laughs> yeah, I know. You start looking around the table and saying, <clears throat> who are you trying to help here? <laughs> then you have the buyers on the other side of the, uh, the table and you've got people who are saying, why the heck am I here? Other people are sitting there saying, I'm, I'm going to protect my own turf or I'm going to protect my own favorite vendor or whatever. And can it just be that I get connected to one other buyer on the other side and the two of us cut a deal and then I'll make my organization do what's necessary to make this work. And you're going to go make your organization do what's necessary to make this work. And we just cut a deal and we move on. It doesn't work like that anymore. Certainty has a premium. The larger the deal, the greater the need for certainty, the greater the need for certainty, the greater need for fingerprints on the decision. More people on both sides, because by doing that, you increase the potential of certainty. So moving on, you mentioned later in the book about, let's see here, you say uh, the, the, the most common issues that experienced and successful salespeople repeatedly tell you are the biggest challenges in selling. And they are how to get access to the highest level decision makers, how to differentiate their company in a commoditized market, which is a great interest to all the marketers listening, and how to unstick deals that are stuck. And this takes up a big, another big chunk of the, of the book. But as it relates to how to get access to the highest level decision makers, what are some of the basics that, that people should be doing to, to try and get access to these more senior level folks other than maybe Stop asking 23-year-olds to try and do that. <laughs> People answer their phone or their email or attend to a conference and talk to you or whatever because you are speaking their language about their biggest problem. You can't go in and say, hi, my name's Tom. I'm from uh, you know XYZ company, and I think our company can help your company. I want to meet with you and just get a better understanding of the kinds of things that you're facing and see how we can be of assistance. And I got to take that meeting. Mm-hmm. I can take that meeting. If you called up and say, hi, my name's Tom. You are one of the top 10 companies in your industry. And the biggest issues that you're facing right now as an industry are the following. It's this, this, and this. Your company is going to be having to anticipate and deal with this change in the next 18 months. My company is specifically focused on that one core change for your market, your business, and your industry. I'd like to come and talk to you about how we can fix that for you. Now, it's risky, isn't it? I have to go out there and say, I know your market. I know your industry. I know the change that you're, the problem that you're going to have inside of the next 18 months. Yes, it's risky. It's better if you've got, you know, one to three. But if you go anything bigger than three, you don't sound like an expert. You don't sound like somebody I should talk to personally. I should go ahead and relegate you or delegate you downstream to someone else because you're just a vendor. You're just a person who's got a bunch of stuff. You're somebody who's uh, promising me three times the number of one face-to-face visits that you can get out there in the marketplace. You haven't told me that you really understand what my marketplace's unique challenge is. You're not relevant to me. You're not an expert to me. We'll talk to somebody in my team. And eventually, if they can figure out relevance and they can uh, figure out an impact, right, then then maybe you'll work your way up to seeing me. But I doubt it. Mm. That's why you get ducked. That's why you get ghosted. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, that one answer also points to how to differentiate yourself in a commoditized market and how to get uh, deals unstuck. I mean, there's a lot of examples in here of, of deals that have gotten stuck. And I think I've experienced every one of them personally. <laughs> so <laughs> the the book was an emotional roller coaster for me. Thank you for, you know, uh, uh, picking at all those <clears throat> wounds that I've had. Uh, but <laughs> like I said, you know, I've done anything wrong. So I probably learned faster um, by doing that. It, just like in the, the last book, we talked about selling in place, the, the new book about selling, you know, in this crazy pandemic we're in, you have a another big section on asking great questions. And it, it's it's just phenomenal. And what's so the listener will understand, you talk about all these different aspects, areas of questions, and then you show a good question, and then you show a great question and explain why it's better. It's just a real master class. So Tom, can you explain some of the things that make for good questions versus great questions? Absolutely. You know, good questions are the kinds of questions that gather 
information. They are uh, background questions and asking them from the right angles will give you really good information for how you think about things and what you're going to do about them. But great questions go past the information. How you know not what someone thinks or what they know, but what they'll do. So they usually have several characteristics. First is that the question is behavioral. You're asking them what they have done, not what they've thought or what they've said. You're asking them to tell you a story. They have to be historical because we know that in history, people will go back to the circumstances, the context around it, and they're going to show their vulnerability. Well, we used to, we did this a couple of years ago. And at the time there were these things that were going on and there was these issues and we had different kind of leadership and et cetera. Opens up the door for you to say, well, how's the leadership changed? Um, what are the circumstances that have changed? Why is the door open now when it was closed before? Historical gives you the context of the background which makes them vulnerable questions. And then, of course, they need to be specific. It's not enough to say a couple of years ago, say, when exactly was that? Well, it was when John Franklin came in as our new CEO, or it was right after the regulation that was passed. And that would have been, oh, I guess, uh, 15 months ago. So they have to be specific in doing that. That's what makes it a great question rather than a good question. Well, just one other question from the book, and I don't know why you put it at the end. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but it there it was uh, about um, it's the chapter on uh, facilitating trust and solutions. In fact, it's the very last chapter. I just want to quote from uh, page one forty six. You write, "I'm always surprised at the number of salespeople whose approach to preparing a sales presentation is about assembling a slide deck and pulling together some samples, a couple of case studies, and maybe a software demo. That's it. That doesn't." cut it anymore. And what I want you to talk about is how you then go on and talk about how there are really three questions that you need to have the answers to. And this has such broad applications for not just a sales presentation, but a sales conversation, but also for any kind of marketing content. Now, there's there's different there are different people at the table who have different motivations and fears and so forth. But the three questions are, what does this person trust? And the second is, what does this person fear? And the third question is, what does this person need to be persuaded of? <laughs> it seems like there could have been 100 questions, but I'm fascinated that you're able to boil it down to those three. And this reminds me of one of my favorite books that's been on the show that I use all the time called Buyer Personas by Adele Ravella. And in that book, which for me, you know, there's no secret sauce to this marketing stuff we do, but that comes pretty close to giving you an unfair advantage. She talks about how there are really just five insights. If you just get some idea of these five insights from a buyer, you will break through uh, unbelievably. And this is uh, these three were sort of reminded me of that. So talk a bit about how you arrived at this, but also say more about what you mean when you say, what does this person trust? What do they trust? What does this person fear? And what does this person need to be persuaded of? I think, Douglas, over time... Uh I came to the, the clear understanding from all the present, uh, presentations, sales I've been in, watched, etc., is that people think, I mean, salespeople think, and sometimes teams think that they're selling to a team. But in fact, it doesn't matter if you're selling between two people or even a room of your people and their people. It doesn't matter. Each person who's on the buying side is making a unique decision for him or for her. Mm -hmm. They brought their IT person, you bring your IT person, finance person to finance person, peer to peer. Each one of those people in the room is not thinking in a shared way with everybody else. So when you prepare for it, that's why I say you don't just bring a, uh, you know, you don't bring just slides and, you know, samples and we all get in the car and we go there and on the way to the, the meeting, we all start saying, well, what are you going to say? What am I going to say? And et cetera. That's focusing internally, believing that the entire room is going to consume the information the same way. Instead, you ask yourself about each person in the room, and maybe it's just one person to one person, but regardless, the question of what does this person trust? 
everything will hinge upon whether there is some bridge of trust. If they do not have a bridge of trust with you, then they can't share information or data. They'll be guarded. Uh, they may even be against you. But trust has. To, so you have to ask: What do they trust? Do they trust case studies? Do they trust um, the, uh, following their leaders? Do they uh, trust data and information? Do they trust their gut? One of the most dangerous things to have is people who just go with their gut because their <laughs> gut isn't. Uh, you know, <clears throat> when people say, "Well, I go with my gut," I'm like, "Where do I? Where's the address of that?" Um, <laughs> so. Um, and then, so you have to figure out what do people trust and, but you have to figure it out person by person. It's a part of your preparation because you, you're understanding that actually that person is making a unilateral or singular commitment or purchase as a part of the group. And it won't be for the same reason as everyone else in there. And then you say, what does this person fear? What I know is that fear is always the greater weight in the decision-making apothecary scale for the decision maker. If fear and benefit or fear and value are being uh, weighed, fear always wins unless you start to take those weights off of the fear side of the scale. So you need to figure out what they trust and then you need to figure out what they're, they're afraid of because they will not listen to your benefits until you've overcome their fears. Mm-hmm. Fears out, always outweigh. And the third thing is, is what do they need to, to be persuaded of? This says that, okay, fine, we've brought it to an even keel. Their, their interest and their fear is somewhere close to the same. Persuasion says, okay, fine. Now I'm ready to hear what it is that you offer as a benefit. And that's the preparation cycle of looking at each of the people that will be in the room, even if you're only talking to one person. We normally start off with all of our benefits. This will do great things for you. You'll be fantastic. You know, Costs will go down. Employee longevity will go up. Marketing will impact. Golden Jets flying forever. Um <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You have to work with the other things first. So when you say they need to be persuaded, though, that, that means what, what information are they, are they open to receiving after you've dealt with their trust and fear? You know, it is. And when I use the word persuaded of, it's the idea that yeah, That's they a term are, we have to be kind of careful with, you know. That's exactly right. It, it, it is exactly right. When we are selling or marketing, we are asking the person to whom we are speaking or to whom we're sending an information for them to make a change, some level of a change in behavior, uh, whether that is purchasing something new, thinking about something in a different way, uh, investing dollars in another place. That persuaded of says, I need to, you've, you've already evened out your benefit and fear scale. Now I need to help you to see yourself as to why should I change? Mm-hmm. Not just would it be wonderful on the other side of change, but why I need to take the step from where I am right now to that new place. And so when it talks about being persuaded of, you're really working through the issue of changing in any flavor to go from now to some future action that is different than what you're doing now. And that's where that issue of persuasion comes in. Yes. You know, if if folks only remember trust and fear like when they're producing content or when they're having a conversation but if you're not it seems like if you're not grounded in what they trust and what their fear there's a lot of other smoke screens that are going to throw you off it just seems like those are two <laughs> so important things to keep in mind that you know we all well maybe not you but a lot of us <laughs> seem to forget about when we get caught up in talking about our products and services and, you know, the the details that we all tend to be more comfortable talking about. So, Tom, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? The idea that there's a sea change of sales and it's moving away from relationships as a source of trust and it's moving to expertise, process, and certainty as the true source of trust. That's the new generation of trust. And the idea that there are relationships that's just a bonus. Yes, absolutely. Well said. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to everything linkable, including to your site and your your LinkedIn profile so that listeners can go and learn more about you. And I hope that they'll reach out to you in some way. Uh, and thank you for being a, a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. And for you, dear listener, just so you know, these authors get the biggest kick out of hearing from listeners and they, they just, please make them feel, please make Tom feel like he uh, spent his time well on this podcast by, 
by talking to all of us. And uh, also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Life After the Death of Selling, How to Thrive in the New Era of Sales. The authors are Tom Searcy and Kara Jane Moore. Tom, thank you very much for joining us again on the Marketing Book Podcast. Douglas, great pleasure. Thank you. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who've left an iTunes review, I would like to return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I will drop it in the mail to you. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on this show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of, for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Podcast.